Hey everybody, so we're gonna now be going through chapter two of Leslie Newbigin's book, Sin and Salvation. So in the preface and also in chapter one, we were talking about uh, what sin ultimately is, and we uh, went through how man is in a contradiction with the world, with creation, with his fellow man, um, with himself, and also with God, and the necessity for salvation um, because of this contradiction. And in this chapter, for chapter two, we're going to talk about what sin is, how it entered the world, and how it affects us. But yes, yeah, so I guess the ultimate question is, how did sin enter into this world? Yeah. Yeah, Newbegin New here is relying more on the biblical story as the true story of how sin came into the world. Um, last time we were talking about salvation, and, and in order to know what salvation is, you need to know what you need to be saved from. And so Newbegin was talking about uh, mankind as a, as in a state of various contradictions, right? So contradiction against the natural world, contradiction against uh, himself, contradiction against uh, his fellow men and women, and and ultimately the base contradiction is uh, a, mankind is in a state of contradiction against God. Uh, the way he talked about that, which we talked about in the previous episode, was uh, by look by was in large abstract kind of like philosophical ca categories. He wasn't really looking at the text of the Bible. In this chapter, we're basically looking at the same ideas, but now we're looking at it in the terms of the narrative presented to us in Scripture in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. So to know what sin is really, to know what sin is biblically, we have to go back to the biblical text. And so now that's what Newbegin is doing. And he begins by talking about what man was created to be. Man was created to be uh, in God's own image, male and female. So that's Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. So in that passage, or in that verse rather, it says God created man in his own image. And you're saying with male, as male and female. Um, so what does, so we always hear of this idea of God creating um, man in his own image. What does that mean? Does that mean that we look like God? Um, right. Yeah, no, that's a good question, because God has no outward appearance, right? Like the, the Bible tells us God is spirit, man is spirit and body. Uh, but it is it is true. The, the scripture does not say we're created with uh, man's spirit in the image of God's spirit, but man himself bears God's image. It's not that we have his image, it's that we are his image, male and female. So what does that really mean? Uh, and Newbegin here has this really great analogy that I think unpacks what the biblical understanding of being the image of God means. So there are two different kinds of images that Newbegin talks about here. One kind of image is like the image of a king's head on a coin. So a king's head on a coin 
is part of the coin. It can't be separated from the coin. So if the king dies, the image still stays on the coin. But there's another kind of image, which is kind of like a reflection in a mirror. Or the image here Nubian uses is the reflection of the moon, the image of the moon in the water of a lake. If the water is still, and if the moon is not covered by a cloud or it's not obscured by anything, the image on the water will shine out clear and beautiful. But if a cloud comes in between the moon and the earth or in between the moon and the lake, uh, the image will disappear. Or if the water is disturbed right, by wind or something else, the image will be scattered and distorted. So the in that example, the image of the moon in the water does not belong to the water in the same way that the image of the king on the coin belongs to the coin. The image of the moon on the water depends on a certain relationship between the moon and the water. And if something happens to that relationship, then the image is either distorted or it's lost. This is a really good way of thinking, thinking about what it means to be the image of God as men and women. Uh, it our, our ability to be images of God depends on a certain relationship with God. Newbegin doesn't talk about this here, but N.T. Wright has a really good similar, similar analogy that human beings as the images of God were meant to be two-way angled mirrors with respect to creation. We were meant to reflect God's loving rule to creation, and we were also meant to reflect all of creation's loving praises up back to God. And so mankind exists in this kind of weird uh, mediating or royal priestly relationship uh, between God and the creation. We, we communicate God's royal presence to all of creation, and we communicate all of creation's priestly praise back to God. And so just like the, the image of the moon on the water, when our relationship with God is disturbed, when we turn away from God, uh, our, the image of God that we bear is distorted and spoiled. And so the, our our relationship with God and with Creator and with uh, with the creation and with one another and even within ourselves, all of that is distorted and lost. Man is created. Uh, this is what uh, Newbegin says here. Thus, the nature of man is that he was made in love by love. For love. Love is the source and end of his being. Therefore, man cannot live alone. For this reason, in the very same verse in which the scripture tells us that God created man in his own image, it goes on to say, male and female created he them. When God created man, he did not create an individual. He created man and woman. And then from, from this, Newbegin starts talking about how God himself is not an individual. God is personal, but he's not a person. He's tri-personal, right? That's what we confess as Christians. God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because he is tri-personal, he is a God in whom love has been existing from the very beginning. Love requires a sense of unity in relationship, but also a sense of difference between one person and another person. And we see that in God. And so for mankind to be created as the image of God, mankind necessarily needed to be created male and female to have that sense of unity of relationship, but also love for the other, love for difference.
necessarily man is created at our very center to be relational, to be in this relationship with God and with one another uh, for the purpose of extending love. It's a very beautiful picture, but that's what it means, I think, to be created in the image of God. That's what New Begins unpacking here. Right. That that was a, a lot. And just to rephrase to make sure I'm understanding this right. Yeah. So being an image bearer of God means that we're not necessarily God, but we're like, as you use an example, uh, we're a reflection of God, but that reflection can be distorted. Um, it could be interrupted. Um, and as you were saying with the idea of love and the necessity of that is that we're in relation with one another. Um, and as God lives in relation with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Father can't individually be the Father without the Son. And yes, likewise with yes. the Holy Spirit. That's right. Um, male has, is not, or man, or an individual is not its own individual. It's not just some... Uh, it's not just an individual. Uh, yeah. I think that's the best way I can say it, but it's in relationship with also male and female, female to male, but also to God as well. Um, man's understanding of who he or she is is also an understanding of who God is. Yeah, I, I guess at at rock bottom, to say that man, male and female, human beings, are created in the image of God means that we are relational or we are created for relationship. Our very being is defined by our relationship with one another, with uh, the stories of my parents who gave birth to me, uh, the stories of the community that raised me, the stories of the people I love now, and who are, all these things are bound up with me and define who I am. There is no such thing as really individuality. Or or if if I saw myself as a pure individual, that would be the destruction of love and therefore the destruction of the image of God within myself. Because it is only by that relationship of love that I can express the image of God. I hope that makes sense. And so that's why Newbegin says, uh, we shall see later how this image has become distorted because man has used the possibility of love for the purpose of self-love. And self-love is just the individual's love and primary care for himself. It's a, it's a broken relationship with the self. So man's love has turned in upon himself. And that is actually a distortion of the image of God. Yeah, that's interesting for sure, because since like logically you can also follow that as well that you know no individual can live by the means of him or herself and like you know even in the idea of just like reproduction you know you need someone else to keep whatever empire is going and the thing is in that same exact mindset you can use other people for your own self-interest right what but that wouldn't be loving or you could use or foster this love from god that you know unifies i guess each other and also unifies us with god and yeah. the intention that we were supposed to be made as these image bearers yeah i mean I, I think a good way to maybe hammer this home is the way newbegin puts it on page 17 he says 
The difference between man and every other creature is that man's manhood consists in his relation with God. A dog's dogginess is in itself, but man's humanity is not in himself. It is in the relation between himself and God. If that is destroyed, he ceases to be human and becomes a brute. So by destroying the relation between ourselves and God, we actually become something less than human. That's what I think uh, the image of God language is trying to draw out for us. We are meant to be in relation in a certain type of relationship again with God, and that will transform our relationships with ourselves with other people and with creation. So, following this idea, God created man in His own image. So then, God gave the world, which He had created to man to enjoy, but He placed a limit. Yeah. So obviously, um, as we read in the Genesis, both yeah, in Genesis two, um, God gives a certain order or a certain rule for man, um, a certain order um, to live and obey by. Yeah, I, I really like the way Newbegin puts this because what he says is that man was created as a steward of creation. And that means a steward has authority to rule, but there, like you said, Benoit, and, and like Newbegin t- talks about here, there's also a limit on that authority. The way Newbegin talks about this is with the concept of relative autonomy or relative independence. So if it was complete autonomy or complete independence, that would mean uh, cutting ourselves off from God. Complete independence would be incompatible with our creation as God's image, as this, in a way, relational bridge between God and creation. That's what mankind was created to be, right? A representation of God to creation, but also a representation of creation to God. Mankind was created to be this kind of relational bridge between God and God's creation. So we can't be completely independent because that would be destroying who we really are. And yet, love requires a sense of independence, too. Love requires a sense of our own autonomy and our own choice. Uh, Newbegin doesn't talk about this as much here, but C.S. Lewis has a really good example. Like, if you program a robot to quote-unquote love someone, that's not really love, right? That's That's you being a puppet master that's you controlling the other person so there has to be some kind of degree of freedom not absolute freedom but relative freedom in the, in the sense newbegin is talking about here for love to really be love for us to be what we were created to be and that is why newbegin says here uh, that is why the tree of the garden of good and evil almost has to exist Right. Like sometimes we can ask ourselves the question, why did God allow for the creation of this tree in the Garden of Eden to tempt uh, people and yet to tempt Adam and Eve uh, to fall away from him? But when you reflect on it, you see that the situation of relative autonomy means that the situation of sin is almost logically necessary. Do you follow what I'm saying so far? Right. Like, if to be relatively independent, to be, to to truly choose to love someone is to have 
the choice available to you to not love. Do you right. get what I'm saying? Like that that's the shadow side that makes love love. And so from the beginning of mankind's creation, there needed to be this logical possibility of turning away from God in order for man to full, truly fulfill his vocation of being the image of God. Right. So there's almost a like the idea of love being both independent and dependent. Yes. And the idea of that yeah. we're dependent on God, but at the same exact time, we have to choose that as well. Um, and I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but huh, um, maybe even like to, you know, a mother and to a child. And, you know, I feel maybe like a mom's best wish would be to have a child be programmed to do everything that they say. But, you know, that's not true. Um, that's impossible as well. But also, would it really be loving? Would they ultimately be human in a sense if they were just doing exactly um what they were told or they would almost seem robotic i guess in that yeah sense. i mean it would um, be a destruction of the integrity of the child right to do that to the child right what right. you want is for the child to grow up into a relationship of mature trust and love towards the mother and honoring of the mother right but in order for the child to do that he has to learn or she, he or she has to learn and be disciplined and be taught to choose the mother do you know what i'm saying like right. and to choose to honor the mother and there has to be a pattern of that constant choosing repeated throughout their lives so that when they are our mature adults that will be the way they live their life in terms of honoring their mom and so in the same sense like god created human beings in a sense like young and immature and the point was that they would continue to grow in trust and loving obedience to God, not the obedience that a slave offers to a, to a tyrant, but the obedience that a child shows to a father. And the way that that kind of obedience grows is by a habit and a pattern of listening to the father's voice, right? Listening to the parent's voice and trusting him more and more. But as we see here, like that create that, that pattern of doing that logically necessitates the shadow side of not doing that right of disobeying that has to be a logical possibility for there to be any meaning to the idea that i chose to listen and obey and so that's what it means by uh, god giving a limit to man's um, man's independence or man's stewardship there's a sense in which we must be dependent on god and because ultimately, if we cut ourselves off from God, we will be cutting ourselves off from the source of love and light. And yet we have independence, too. And that independence means that we can choose to cut ourselves off. Uh, I know this is kind of deep and maybe a little confusing, but I think it's very once we grasp that, we can understand the situation of the fall a lot better. Right. And to kind of use the example of the parent again, you need to have the belief or the trust that this father is good or this parent is good. But if you don't have that belief or that trust, then, you know, there are, you know, in real life, there are bad parents. And yeah. you can have the, and we all have like the sense of, you know, oh, I probably know better than my parent. Um, so we believe we understand what is good and evil, what is right and wrong to do, what are our own limits. 
And we could even use that analogy with God as well. And God saying, this is the right thing to do. Here are the limits. But we seek after, we seek after this knowledge of good and evil of, and understanding, oh, why can't I do this? Or why can't I do that? Instead of trusting God or the parent, you know? Um, so into the next point, man wishing to be like God transgress, transgresses that limit and falls into sin. So there is some type of limit or there's some type of order or man was told to do a certain thing. And as a result, wanting to be like God, but there is a consequence to that. Right. So the limit, obviously, we know from the story is that man should not, men and women should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And why is that? It's because in this relationship that man is created to be with God, true knowledge of good and evil can only be given to man when he or she seeks it from God. If you seek it on your own, if you eat from it on your own authority, you are destroying both the knowledge of good and evil because true knowledge, because true good and evil is defined by God himself. You're, so you're, you're not really going to get the knowledge of good and evil. And you also destroy yourself because you've destroyed the relationship that is the prerequisite to being human and to finally knowing what good and evil is. So the limit, in a way, is like for mankind's good and for the preservation of his being. But as you said, Benoit, like man transgresses that limit. And just a point here, if you um, if you examine the book of Proverbs, you see that over and over again, the uh, Solomon is talking about how man was created for wisdom, to pursue wisdom. And wisdom is defined as the knowledge of good and evil. And so wisdom was something that God always intended for human beings. But what is the way in which we receive wisdom. And Proverbs talks about this. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's the right relationship with God. A sort of reverent love towards God is the beginning of wisdom. And so wisdom was something that God wanted for human beings to achieve in its maturity. But it needed to be something that God gave, not something that mankind grasped for on its own authority. But that's that very the fact that God was not that God did not immediately give to human beings creates the opportunity for sin. Man is so this is the way Newbegin writes about it. Man is made in the image of God, but he is not God. This situation provides the opportunity for temptation and sin. Temptation begins with distrust of God's goodness. And so this sense that we are in relative freedom over ourselves, it leads us to the question, why is our freedom over ourselves only relative? Like, why does God want to ultimately be in control? And so that leads to some kind of suspicion from man towards God. And that's what the tempter suggests to Eve. He, he suggests that man, man should have freedom to eat from any tree. And the fact that there's a limit shows that there's some lack in the love of God. And that distrust is the beginning of temptation. So based off of that, Newbegin writes that unbelief is the very root and basis of sin. If human beings perfectly trusted in God's goodness, there could have, that temptation could have gone nowhere. 
the fact it's so distrust or unbelief in God's good goodness is the root of sin. That's that's also interesting that you say unbelief is the root of sin, but also how you use unbelief as distrust. Um, yeah. When we usually think of belief, we think of, you know, I believe in this because since X, Y, and Z, or I have this rationale. Um, but you use it, or you're saying it in the sense of unbelief or belief is the idea of trust or loyalty. Yeah, I'm, I think sometimes when we talk about belief and unbelief, uh, we're, we're talking about intellectual propositions, right? Like two plus two equals four, uh, or facts, right? Like Jesus is Lord, that's a fact. But the Apostle James in his letter, uh, in his epistle in the New Testament, talks about how even the demons have the belief that Jesus is Lord, right? But they're damned. Why are they damned? Because that belief doesn't include with it any sense of trust or loyalty to Jesus, right? It's just like a belief in my head. Oh, yeah, this is God's Messiah. But that doesn't motivate them to live their lives in any kind of sort of way, right? So unbelief here is not just knowledge of facts. It's about an attitude of trust and loyalty. That's at the very root of sin. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's interesting because since I'm reading how Newbigin then says, we think that the opposite of sin is, um, is righteousness. But if we're using this definition of unbelief and loyalty, then it's in the sense that the opposite of sin is faith, full trust and obedience to God, rather than a fullness of doing what is right and doing all these different things because I know it's right. Yeah, and when we have that proper understanding of what faith is, which is the attitude of trust and loyalty to God and to his Messiah, Jesus, then when Paul starts talking about faith in Romans chapter 4, and he's talking about the faith of Abraham, it makes a lot more sense because Abraham's faith was his total sense of trust, his total attitude of trust towards God and towards God's promises that he would have a son in his old age and all the rest, all the different things that if he sacrificed Isaac, he would even be able to make that right again. That's how Abraham was able to live this great life of faith. Um, but instead of thinking of the opposite of sin as faith, we think of the opposite of sin as righteousness. And that's because in the back of our minds, we still have this paradigm of sin as like making mistakes, right? Or doing the wrong thing. And so the opposite of that must be doing the right thing, righteousness, right? Mm. But really, when you get down to the root of sin, it's this attitude of distrust towards God. And therefore, the root of the opposite of sin is an attitude of trust and loyalty to God. Right. And it, it's almost like it's trying to pronounce or make note of that it's not legalistic. It's not the matter of just once you are removed of your sins, then you do everything rightly. Or the idea of like being saved is to do everything rightly. But it's right. to... Which, yeah. Yeah. But I we, guess... It, as Yeah. I was just going to say, it's very it's very uh, appropriate that Newbegin would emphasize grace, even here at the beginning of Genesis, because he comes from the Church of Scotland tradition, 
uh, as he comes to CSI, and that's, you know, very Presbyterian and very reformed in his theology. So we inherit a lot of that through the Presbyterians and Congregationalists who came into the CSI. Right. So we, I guess, as humans or the human race, um, deriving from Adam and Eve, um, we live in sin or this unbelief or dis disobedience or distrust. And there's a consequence to that. And man is driven from the presence of God. And there's a curse. We think of like, you know, sin as a curse. And there is a curse that we now um, live under. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this, this series of curses that is the result of transgressing the limit God placed upon man is basically a restatement of all the contradictions we talked about before. First, there's disharmony within man himself. So man, what do we see in the story of Adam and Eve after they eat from the apple? They're ashamed, right? Uh, they're ashamed of the nakedness of their own body. And so we see here, even at the beginning, a hint of man's state of contradiction with his own body. Now he's not, his body is not an instrument of, or a, a, a cause for joy and for delight, but just a, it's a source of shame to him. Uh, there's also disharmony between man and nature. So God curses the earth so that it will no longer, uh, it, it will be by the sweat of man's brow that fruits and vegetables come up. Uh, instead of good seeds, thorns and thistles will come up for him. And the same happens to childbirth. That's what um, Eve hears, right? Instead of the natural process of uh, childbirth being full of joy, it's going to be full of pain. Uh, there's also a disharmony between <clears throat> human beings. Uh, now the man is going to try and dominate the woman. Uh, now there's going to be blame, right? There's a, there was a cycle of blame here. Uh, Adam says, the woman you gave me, she you know, gave me the fruit to eat and I ate it. And Eve tries to blame the serpent. And fundamentally, finally, there's... There's a disconnect between the relationship of man and God. Because what happens immediately after Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the, good, of the knowledge of good and evil? They realize that they're naked, they're ashamed, and then God comes walking, calling for them in the garden. But now when God calls, Adam does not run to God with joy like a child runs to his father. Now Adam and Eve are afraid of God's voice. We have made ourselves into enemies of God. We simultaneously know that we can't escape from God, and yet we try to evade him. We, we try to take him out of our minds. We try to avoid him. The voice of God now fills us with terror. And that's the rest of the story of the human race, is, is the fact that the voice of God fills us with terror, and yet God is lovingly and patiently searching for mankind. Man pretends that we pretend that we're seeking God, but really we are trying to run away from him and hide from him. And yet the story of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the story of this God who we are running away from, who is lovingly and, and patiently searching for us and trying to bring us back to him. So, Brian, let's, uh, let's go back just for a second, because since we're saying that God is a loving God, but 
as a result because we're saying God is a loving God, but we also see this curse and we see um, this pain that now exists um, across of all of humanity, um, this yeah. curse that we now live under. So how do we um, kind of reconcile and how do we understand that God is a loving God, but there's also a curse that we live under? Yeah, I think it all comes back to this idea that mankind was created to be God's image. And that means that mankind is necessarily relational. If you understand that, then you understand how the transgression of the limit, the, tra the, the attempt to seek to make ourselves God, to put ourselves in the position of determining good and evil for ourselves, how that logically cuts ourselves off from God. It cuts off our relationship from God. It shows that we are choosing ourselves over God, right? To choose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to make ourselves into gods as, you know, the serpent tempted Eve, is to say that we are, we are privileging ourselves. Instead of living in a relationship of loving trust and loving obedience to God, we are now trying to create a space or create a realm of our own. And God, because he respects human integrity, allows that to happen. And the story of the world, the story of the entire Bible after that, is the consequences of what happens when man tries to create a space and an integrity of their own. The, the, the consequences of that is total chaos and sin and murder, right? Immediately after Adam blames Eve, what is the next thing that happens? Cain kills Abel. Then Cain goes on to found the first city. So civilization itself is built upon the accumulation of evils. And God in his mercy restrains us from totally destroying each other. But that in itself is an act of his love and his patience, that he doesn't give us the natural consequences, the full consequences of what our sin should uh, lead to, right? Because what did God warn Eve, warn Adam and Eve before uh, they ate from the tree. If you eat it, you will surely die. But God is kind of like a dam, right? Restraining the flood. God is restraining the full consequences of sin from coming down upon humankind because of his great love for humankind. And yet at the same time, man has logically cut itself off from its creator. And so the consequence of that, the natural consequence of that, the necessary consequence of that, if you've cut up yourself off from a relationship with the source of your light and life, the consequence of that has to be disintegration and ultimately destruction and death, right? Right. So I think that's the way, that's one way we can try to understand this story and how we can reconcile the fact that God is the, this God of love and yet we live under a sense of god's wrath right so we live under the curse and we see stories and generations throughout the old testament of people who are trying to live right who are trying to search after god and being righteous before god and you know we we learn this through sunday school and we learn about you know whatever bible character it may be um but at the end of the day, um, it's still not fully um, able to restore whatever man is able trying to do to reverse 
um, the effects of the curse. It's not fully able to um, reverse that curse that initially happened, um, which I find interesting, which means yeah. that also anything that we can do by our own regards is not enough um, yeah. to to take apart or to be made whole um, from the sin that we live in. Yeah, I think that's, um, yeah, it's, it's a very good point. And it's a very important point that we all recognize is that the situation that the Bible tells us that all of mankind is in is a situation from which there is no hope from the inside, right? There is no possibility of us bringing our, restoring the relationship with God in the right way because we are all caught up in this tangle of self-love ultimately that we can't extricate ourselves from. And so for us to be saved ultimately, salvation has to come from the outside. It has to come from outside the sphere of human activity and human integrity that we've tried to create for ourselves apart from God. Somehow God has to break in and put himself into our space. He has to put himself into our story. And from the inside, it's almost like, I mean, this is a bad analogy, but it's almost like God has to go into the matrix to fix the matrix. Uh, something has to happen like that for us to be saved. And the story of the Bible is honestly a story of how God did that. Right. Um, and not just to uh, ruin the story, but I mean, everyone knows about, <laughs> we all know about this idea of Jesus coming to flesh and saving us from our sins. Right. Spoiler um, alert. Spoiler. Um, but that's also interesting that you point out that sin and reversing the effects of sin is not a matter of just doing the right thing. Um, it's not a matter of just, you know, I can just reverse it by being a good person or whatever it may be. Yeah. Sin is deeper than that. And there's, and as a result of sin, there's consequences that we live by that we see today. And there's a lot of consequences that we don't e we're not even aware of. Yeah. So um, the next chapter uh, talks about that. What is sin? And looking at the deeper root of or the nature of sin, uh, which we'll talk about next time.